I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word so that we can do what was just played, and that's to simply trust Jesus through his word as he speaks to us today. We are going to focus once again in Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 10, um, but I'm going to read once again the longest sentence in the Bible, which is verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 3 uh, through chapter 1 verse 14. The title of the sermon this morning is Uniting Heaven and Earth, Revealing the Mystery of of God's will in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you that you have not left us in the darkness of our ignorance and sin, but that you have come to us, you have initiated to us, and you have revealed yourself to us, though you have not revealed every detail. And so help us this morning, O oh God, as we sang moments ago that in Christ, you have given us ears and you have given us eyes. Lord, may we use them to listen and may we use them to see. And Father, may we savor Christ once again as he comes to us through his word this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. John Chrysostom, a church father, said that God has not only released us from our sins, but has also made us fit objects of his love. It is as though one were to take a leper 
wasted by distemper and disease, by age and poverty and famine, and were to turn him all at once into a graceful youth, surpassing all mankind in beauty, shedding a bright luster from his cheeks and eclipsing the sunbeams with the glances of his eyes, and then were to set him in the very flower of his age, and after that array him in purple and a diadem and all the attire of royalty. It is thus that God has arrayed and adorned his soul, this soul of ours and clothed it with beauty and rendered it an object of his delight and of his love. Beloved, in Jesus Christ, what the Apostle Paul is celebrating, he's not right here specifically trying to get you to believe it. He's assumed it. I'm trying to get you to believe it. I want the assumptions of the Apostle Paul about the goodness and truth and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ not to be just something that you try to believe, but that it might become the very assumed reality through which you interact with everything in this world. I want it, and, and I think the Apostle Paul wants it, and God wants it, to be for you, it to be the lens through which you look at everything. That it's not a set of bullet point doctrinal truths to check off. Yes, I believe that one, and yes, I believe that one, and yes, I believe that one. That's not the goal. The goal is because I accept what is said here, then here is how I'm going to think about me. Here's how I'm going to think about the world. Here's what I'm going to think about God. Here's what I'm going to think about what God thinks about me. This is a lens. It is, to mix metaphors, it is a filter. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is gushing over the extravagance of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. And what he has not said anywhere in here yet is that any of this is because you're good enough for it. He hasn't said any of this is because you're thankful enough for it. He hasn't said anywhere in here that it's because you make sure he's aware that you're unworthy of it. He hasn't addressed our perspective of this anywhere other than to tell us that everything here is for the praise of God's glorious grace. That the only response that the Apostle Paul has given to us here that is the appropriate response for us to subjectively interact with God on the basis of this extravagant grace 
is to praise, to worship. We have been unfolding here the extravagance of God for the very purpose of enticing you to just how glorious your salvation is in spite of you. In spite of you prior to salvation and in spite of you after salvation. Let me put it to you another way. You've got to stop thinking about yourselves so much. I say that because we live in a culture that trains you to do that. Watch TV. Every show Watch not the content to see is it good or bad, is it biblical, not biblical. We all know it's going to be a heavy mix, mostly of unbiblical. But that's not what I want you to pay attention to. Pay attention to the way the characters in those shows process the world. And what you will find is that every single one of them process the world from the perspective of themselves. You are heavily trained through the culture of the land in which we live is to process everything from the perspective of yourself. You just are. What Paul is telling you to do is process everything from the perspective of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a very simple way that that can make a difference. And we're going to talk about this, Lord willing, in more detail next Sunday. But many of us, when we are wrestling with a decision that we have in this life, we'll often ask ourselves and, and also we'll ask God questions like, well, am I supposed to marry so-and-so? Am I supposed to go to this school or that school? Am I supposed to take this job or am I supposed to take that job? And we call this seeking God's will. But that's not what we're actually seeking when we ask those questions. The question before us is, will this person that I am considering marrying, is this job that I am considering taking, will this vocation, will this move to this new area, Will, will this school, will this, will this, will this, whatever the thing is, will it facilitate you participating in God's purposes of glorifying Christ in all things? 
What Paul is setting before us in this gushing theology is something extremely vital. And that is God's revealed will. What, what Paul is helping us to see in a, full, a fuller expression than what was known prior to this time is the purposes of God for everything that God is doing. Why did God create? What is God's purposes for creation? What is God's purpose for marriage? What is God's purpose for vocation? What is God's purpose for art, for music? What is God's purpose for family life? What is God's purpose? Right? For one thing after another. What is God's purpose? That's the question that we often forget to ask. What we tend to remember to ask is, what is God's purpose for me in this specific thing? And that's not the same question as what is God's purpose for this thing. We have reduced life. So that its meaning is often contingent on how I am doing in life. And beloved, what that does is it tempts you to shrink life into it being meaningful if you feel fulfilled. Or if you feel that things are going the way that you hoped they would. Or if things are going in a way that you can see success coming. The culture in which we live teaches you not only to look at life solely through the lens of yourself. This culture will teach you, and it, and it has taught you, let me put it that way, it has taught you that the value of a thing is found in the return or benefit that it gives you. Something is important, something is meaningful, something is valuable if you are getting something good from it. Give your life to Jesus? Well, okay, give your life to Jesus if... What that means is you get to have a successful marriage or you get to have a successful job or you get to exercise dominance in culture and politics. Embrace Christ if there is a payout. What the Apostle Paul has been folding for us is there is no further payout than what you already have. And what do you already have in Christ? Every spiritual blessing of the heavenly places. See, there's no further payout because 
you have received fullness upon fullness upon fullness. It is the world that is teaching you and training you to see yourself as not having that fullness. It is the world that teaches you to look at yourself in the immediacy of the circumstances that you are experiencing and let that determine for you whether or not you have blessing, whether or not you, what your beliefs, uh, whether or not your beliefs are paying off for you. The Christian worldview is the, is the exact opposite. From the fullness of what you already possess, because you have the fullness of the riches of Christ lavished upon you in his grace. Then what your faith is latching hold of is that fullness. Union with Christ is something that we grasp by faith. And through that faith, we engage with the things of this world. You see, we tend to flip it on its head. One of the reasons we do that is because we rightly understand that right now, things are not as they are designed to be. With the fall of Adam in the garden, what took place in the words of Paul here is that heaven and earth were rent asunder. Now, we don't tend to think about it that way. When God created Adam in the garden, he created Adam in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, the catechism teaches us. That Adam was created with a positive bent towards his relationship with God. And that God made Adam and he placed him in this beautiful garden that was described in terms of fullness. That was described in terms of a beauty. Uh, it was described in terms of having more than Adam needed that God himself described as being very good, that he described as being excessively good. And that garden was a sanctuary for God to dwell with his creation, a sanctuary for God to dwell with his people. But when Adam sinned, when Eve sinned, it wasn't just simply that they broke their relationship with God, which is the, the language we typically use. It is that. But what was happening prior to that sin is as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, God's will was being done on earth as it was in heaven until that sin. And with that sin, now the creation was plunged into sin, into misery, because God's will was no longer being done on earth as it was in heaven. And Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden sanctuary, as I've talked about before, they were kicked out to the east. And... For the rest of history, 
for God's people, when you enter into God's presence at the tabernacle, if you enter into God's presence at, at one of the temples, you always came in from the east, always. The tabernacle, the temple, it, it, was, it, it had a progression of holiness the further west you went. And you went into the place that you couldn't, if you went into the place that you couldn't see from the outside, there was the holy place. And then if you went further into that, there was the holy of holies. The picture there in the tabernacle and the temple was that that place of God's presence was cut off from the camp of Israel. And only through the mediation of a priest and through a sacrifice could they even come to the, uh, to, the, to the altar. But even then, the average person could not pass the altar and go into the tent or into the Holy of Holies. And even the high priest could only go there once a year and only if he did things exactly right and even then did so under the threat of dying. Do you see what was happening? God's will on earth was not being done as it was in heaven. God's purpose for Adam prior to Adam's fall was for Adam to be his representative royal figure in the garden tabernacle through whom God's will would grow and grow and spread as Adam guarded and protected God's garden presence. In other words, Adam's vocational call as that royal figure in the garden was to help to reveal God's will throughout the earth. Did Adam do it? No. And when he didn't, it wasn't just that the relationship was broken. Beloved, heaven and earth were rent asunder. Listen to Paul's words then here in Ephesians 1 as, as he is saying that what he is accomplishing in Christ in the fullness of, of all time is, is that he is uniting all things in Christ. And then says what? Heaven and earth. It is through the one who is greater than Adam. It is through the second Adam. It is through the last Adam. It is through Jesus Christ, that eschatological son of God, who came in flesh in which the eternal God took on, added to himself flesh, where Christ, as the eternal God taking on flesh, became the union of heaven and earth in his very existence. 
and then as that royal figure, that, media, that, that mediator sent from God to represent and to embody and to speak God's will into this fallen world, Jesus comes and in the ministry of what he is doing, he exercises that authority that he has in heaven over the things of earth as he manipulates the created world through his miracles. Exercising dominion over this world as he is raised from the dead. Back to life. The person of Jesus and the work of Jesus fulfills God's original purposes to create a world and to create a people where heaven and earth will exist in God's shalom that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have known for all eternity. I know this is big picture, and I know this is overwhelming, but you need to be overwhelmed. Because as we were talking about in Sunday school, the temptation for us is to shrink God and this world down into manageable parts so that we can be able to explain God. There is no doubt there are good intentions for wanting to be able to explain God to an unbeliever. There is no doubt about it. But at the same time, how do we explain three in one? How do we explain the eternal God taking on flesh? How do we explain to God-man dying on the cross for sins that were not his? We can't. You either embrace them by faith or you don't. Now Paul is explaining to us the components of what God has done to accomplish these things and to bring them about but make no mistake that even as he is unfolding this for us he is not explaining it he is asserting it and he is celebrating it and he describes what he is doing here in terms of God having revealed the mystery of his will in Christ. Mystery here, the word uh, that, that is used here in the Greek text is certainly a word that means something that was previously unknown that now has been made known. And that's the general sense of that word. But it's a, little, it's a little more um, intricate than that. It, it can mean that it wasn't known at all, but now has been made known. It, it can mean it was known a little bit, but now it's known in a more full way. Uh, it could mean that it was secret, but now it's not secret. It, it has lots of different dimensions. But the essence here of this word is that God is revealing something that we could not know unless he revealed it. 
And the calling that we have is to receive what he has revealed. Not to demand that God reveal it in a way that is easy for us to explain. Whether to ourselves or to an unbeliever. There is a mystery to what God is doing. A mystery that is not mystical in the sense that only the initiated can can get access to the secret knowledge if they do these certain specific things. This word was used uh, uh, in the Greco-Roman world. It was used to refer to um, special hidden teaching that was concealed into different rites and customs and ceremonies. For the people who are living in Ephesus, they lived uh, in, in a city that was dedicated uh, to, to the worship of Artemis or to the worship of Diana. And the way that you worshipped her was that you went to the, to the, to the um, temple that was dedicated to her and you had to engage in taking certain things that would put you Uh, into a certain psychological condition. All right, we'll put it in today's terms. You basically had to trip on acid. You had to eat shrooms and get into this disassociative state. And then you had to engage in immoral acts with the priestess or the priest. And that, and through doing those things, you would be shown the secret hidden will of Artemis that not everyone had access to unless they went through these certain rites and ceremonies. Now this is the world that the Ephesian believers have come out of. And what does Paul tell them? God's will it is mysterious in the sense that unless he initiates to us we can't know it And praise be to God, he has initiated to us. We don't come to church here to initiate to God to get something from him that he'll only give if we do a certain thing. We come here because in Christ we have already received everything that there is to receive from his hand. And we come here to to experience And to embrace, once again, the fullness of who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. But make no mistake that this will of God, that he is revealing and uniting all things in Jesus Christ. And the purposes that God has in exalting Christ above all things. Make no mistake That in what God is revealing through his initiation to us, it is not simple and it is not something that can necessarily be explained completely to the very detail. It is a mystery still in the sense that we are incapable of embracing to the fullness God's truth while we are still here on earth. And the reason we have an eternity with God is because that's how long it will take to come to know him.
So the extravagance of what God is doing for us in Christ, beloved, is not something that we're supposed to shrink down or boil down or, or take down or reduce in order for us to be able to explain it or for us to be able to control it. What God has done is reveal enough to us to put us in amazement and to stoke within us a wonderment at who he is and what he's doing. This mystery, he began to unfold in the garden, but it was not in its fullness in the garden. And that purpose that he has has been unfolding even since the fall of Adam and Eve when they got kicked out of the garden as God has been initiating to us a little bit at a time, further unfolding for us what he is doing. And even now as we have this, this amazing revelation from God in Christ through the Apostle Paul about what God has been doing and the meaning of what God did in the Old Testament as Paul utilized the, the exodus as a way of unfolding the work of Christ. That in Jesus Christ we have a superior Moses. In Christ, we have the fullest expression of what Moses was supposed to be as the mediator of God's will, as the priest of God's grace, as Moses uh, was pointing them to something bigger than himself. What we have in Jesus Christ is that bigger thing that he was pointing to. So that in Jesus Christ, we have a superior champion, one who has come to us, entered into slavery with us in order to take us out of slavery into freedom. And what we have in Jesus Christ is a superior lamb, a superior Passover lamb, where the Passover lamb that the, that the people of God ate on the night before they left Egypt as it was uh, providing a temporary covering for them so that their firstborn didn't have to die. God sent his son to die for us in order to provide us not a temporary covering of blood, but a permanent covering of righteousness. So that in Christ we have a superior Passover lamb as Jesus took on flesh and died on the cross for our sins. But he was not a lamb that remained dead. And so he is superior in that not only is his death completely efficacious for every need that we have, his resurrection has secured for all time every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even now, with the fuller expression that Paul is giving to us here in these words of our salvation, beloved, God is not revealing every detail to you. but he has revealed his purpose. And the calling for us as his people is not to shrink God and his purposes down 
to try to figure out how God's purpose will fit in my life. But for us to enlarge our lives by fitting them into God's purposes for his son. Beloved, there is still unknowns for us. There is still mystery for us. And this word that is used here for mystery that uh, was utilized in the Greco-Roman world to talk about these secret religious rites or these secret political ceremonies is a word that was used in the early church to express the religious rites that Christ has given us by which we taste afresh of the eternal goodness and truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. As the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper were described in terms of the mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Not as a secret rite by which you gain some kind of secret knowledge, but by a simple expression of God's eternal love to you that can be handled and touched and tasted and smelled and enjoyed where the fellowship that Christ has purchased for you is a fellowship that is experienced when you eat and when you drink by faith. Can you explain to me how God makes his presence known to us through a simple piece of bread and through fruit from the vine? I can't. But what God has told us is that when we receive these by faith, when they have been consecrated through the words of institution by Jesus Christ, that as you take of this bread and as you drink of this cup, you are tasting of Christ afresh. And you are enjoying afresh the fullness of the eternal redemption that you already possess in Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, don't take away from what this supper is by questioning God's wisdom in revealing himself to us through this way. Because what does Paul tell us right here? God has done all of this according to his wisdom and his insight. And so don't question whether or not you are qualified to be here if you are trusting in Christ. Because if you are trusting in Christ, you are qualified to receive Christ through this meal. If you have not trusted Christ, then you are not qualified. If you are resting on anything other than or anything in addition to Christ, then you are not qualified. Because any time you insert your efforts into these things, you are disqualified. But beloved, in the fullness of God's wisdom and insight, he has been pleased to reveal that this is the way 
that he is overcoming Adam's sin in the garden. And this is his way by which he is reuniting heaven and earth. By, causing his, by, by leading his son to come and take on flesh, by leading his son to die for sin on the cross and be raised from the grave to a new resurrection physical body and communicating these gospel eternal realities through bread and a cup that can be handled and that can be tasted. And so, beloved, when you hear the invitation of the Son of God this morning, if what you are looking for in yourself is whether or not you are trusting in Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, then fly to this table in the joy of what this invitation means for you. That God wants you to taste and God wants you to enjoy so that you have the assistance of bread and cup to reveal to you these eternal mysteries that, yes, God is making known through Christ, even as he is making Christ known to you through the bread and through the cup. Beloved, what Paul has told us is that in Christ you are free. You are forgiven. You are clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Son. And this bread and this cup is a presentation of that Christ who is already in you. And so let this be the enjoyment of your inheritance, even as we partake in a, in a way now that is not the fullest expression of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will eat together, not by faith but by sight when Christ returns. And let this be a presentation to you of the infinite and eternal blessings that are already yours through faith in Jesus Christ. A worshipful response to this gospel theology, this extravagant theology, a worshipful response doesn't question, doesn't think that it has to prove anything to God, and doesn't take what God has done for granted. A worshipful response embraces what is here and experiences the joy of Christ in the bread and in the cup. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your will has been revealed in Christ. Your will is still being revealed in Christ as Christ is revealed through the bread and through the cup. And so, Lord, help us as your people not to reduce you and not, not to reduce you to, to the theological statements that you have provided, but to allow, allow the theological statements you have provided to, to be the grounds by which we live in amazement that even these truth statements do not exhaustively capture who you are. And so protect us, Lord, from that desire to shrink you down so that, we, so that you're more manageable to us or, or to shrink you down so that you're more explainable to those outside and instead help us to bask 
in the mystery of your eternal greatness that we will never fully exhaust because they are inexhaustible. And let that not lead us to taking you for granted. Help us not, not, to, not to lead that you know, to us becoming befuddled. But Lord, may our faith Grasp hold of you through your word, even when we don't understand it to the fullest. And may the handling and the tasting of the bread and the cup lead us, Lord, to embrace and to accept heaven and earth being restored in Jesus Christ which is not only the future that you have for us as your people, but it is a present a, that is already existent now as we, as your people, who have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies, partake of the bread that comes from heaven and as we drink the blood that has come from Christ. Lord, do this so that as we accept, embrace, and experience you, that our lives and our attitudes, that our words will be to the praise of your extravagant, glorious grace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.